So last year, Jenny and I became homeowners for the first time, which is, of course, very exciting. But you also learn as a, a homeowner that uh, there are differences uh, compared to renting. So for instance, when our oven quit on Christmas Day, uh, there was no landlord to call and say, hey, can you deal with this and ultimately pay for this oven to be fixed? Um, so the other day, uh, Jenny went outside, and in the front yard, she noticed that there was water bubbling up from underground, a little mini fountain. This was unusual. We don't have a fountain in our front yard, and so it was clear that there was a, a water leak somewhere underground. So she called the city with the hopes that it was their problem to fix and not our problem to fix. And uh, the very kind lady at City Hall said, well, actually, it is your problem. It's on your side of the water meter, and I can tell because your meter is going crazy. You are using 800 liters per hour of water in the last couple of hours, and that's more than double what you used all day yesterday. So she said, we'll send someone out to turn off the water, but you're going to have to deal with the leaks. So I called the plumber and got him out, and, and he took a look at some of the plumbing that came into the house in the basement, and he took one look at it, and he said, ooh, this plumber didn't quite do this right. So he said, you might want to actually replace the entire span between the house and the, the city water box, about 20 feet. So I said, well, how much is that going to cost? And he said, well, $2,000, $2,500 maybe. And so I swallowed hard and I said, well, what if I do the digging myself? Could I save some money that way? And he said, well, sure. So he left because he had to go do something else. And I grabbed my shovel and I started digging. And uh, I got about three, three and a half feet down and found the water pipe. And I noticed pretty quickly, I, I dug a trench about five feet long. I noticed pretty quickly, the problem was obvious. There was a fitting between two pipes that had cracked and the pipe came right out of the fitting. It was, it was completely shot. That's where the water leak was coming from. So once I had uncovered it, once I had dug down deep enough to find the problem, it became a little more obvious what needed to be done. It didn't seem like I needed to replace 20 feet of pipe, I needed to replace one fitting. So that plumber couldn't come back, but another plumber came later that day, and $260 later, we had water in our house again. Sometimes problems lay under the surface, and you can't see the problem until you do the work of digging it up to uncover what's actually going on. Jesus is going to say something similar to a group of people today who were very concerned about the problems in the world, the evil in the world. And according to these people, the problems were out there. But Jesus is going to say, actually, the root cause of, of evil in the world lies in here. It lies in the human heart. And if you will dig down deep enough to uncover the root of the problem, you will see that the problems in the world, yes, there are problems out there, but the problems that you need to deal with are in here before you can pay attention to what's out there. We're in this series we're calling Find and Follow. We're journeying through the book of Mark in the New Testament, and we're reaching a point in the story where Jesus is about to have a confrontation with the Pharisees and teachers of the law. These were religious leaders who uh, knew the, the Old Testament law backwards and forwards. They should have had things all together. You might remember that Jesus has already had a bit of a run-in with them in Mark. In Mark 3, the Pharisees lodged a pretty serious accusation against Jesus. Do you remember what it was? They said, you are in league with Satan. That's how you're doing the things that you're doing. So there is already this tension between these two groups. What we're going to learn as we study the story today is this. Pharisees work to earn grace. Disciples receive it gratefully. Pharisees work to earn grace, but disciples receive it. And listen, as we get into this story, I want to, I want to say to you, I, there's a lot of power in this story if you will allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. 
In fact, there was a moment in my study as I was preparing for this message where I just had to stop and say, Lord, forgive me and show me the ways in which I have been a Pharisee because I can see them in my own life. So as we evaluate the Pharisees, let's not think of them as a them. Let's think of them as people that we are sometimes like. And if we do so, if you will allow the Spirit to speak into your heart, you will receive conviction and encouragement this morning, I believe. So let's look at the story. Mark 7, starting in verse 1. We're going to take it in in stages here, starting with the first few verses. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Mark adds for us parenthetically here, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So let's pause there for a moment and think about the Pharisees. The the Pharisees can be applauded for a few things, okay? The Pharisees were very well-intentioned. They they were very concerned about purity, about holiness, about following God in a, a a manner that was worthy of God's purity and God's holiness. And so they were very well-intentioned. They wanted people to have very clear steps as to how they could follow God in their everyday life. That This is how you would follow God in this scenario. And this is how you would follow him in this scenario. They would look at the Old Testament law and they would say, okay, this is what the law says here, but there's a related question that's not directly addressed. So let's address the question and we'll, we'll, we'll affix a, a law to it. It's a tradition, but we're going to give it the same weight as scripture itself. The desire was good to help people understand how they might follow God. They saw themselves as putting a fence around the Torah, around the law. And this is actually where they get into trouble. So pretend like they were uh, addressing a speed limit. The speed limit on Highway 1 around here is 100 kilometers an hour. The Pharisees would say, okay, so that's the law of God, 100 kilometers an hour, but we really don't want to break the law. So we're going to set a law prior to that to say 90 kilometers an hour is the speed limit for you and me. You know some people who abide by this because you pass them on the freeway every day. 90 kilometers an hour. So if you're going 93, the Pharisees would say, well, you're sinning. The actual law hasn't been broken yet. But the Pharisees' fence that they put around the law has now been broken. And so they uh, created all of these traditions that they equated with God's law. These traditions became enshrined in a document called the Mishnah in about 200 AD. Now, When it came to the hand-washing thing, it's an example of of the Pharisees doing just this. Okay, there was no Old Testament law that said you have to wash your hands before you eat. However, there were various references to washing in the Old Testament. Uh, One of them is in Exodus chapter 30. And it was commanded there that priests, before they entered into the tabernacle to serve God, needed to make sure their hands and their feet were clean. There was a basin that was created just so that they could wash their hands. But this wasn't for everyone, and it didn't have to do with eating. It was for the priests when they went into the tabernacle. In uh, Numbers chapter 18, it was said that priests and their families could eat a portion of animals who'd been sacrificed to the Lord. That was their, their portion to eat. They were allowed to eat it, but they needed to be ceremonially clean. They needed to be washed before they could eat that food. So there's a reference to washing and food, but it was to a priest and the family for a very specific type of meal. It wasn't for everyone, for every meal. Yet the Pharisees took these kinds of commands and said, no, before you eat, 
you need to wash. In fact, even if you're out in the marketplace, if you're out among secular people doing secular things, you need to wash your hands before you touch food that you're going to put into your body, lest you become unclean. In fact, they enshrined this law so seriously that a Jewish rabbi is quoted as saying, whoever eats bread without previously washing the hands is as though he had intercourse with a harlot. Okay, see see what they did? They equated washing hands and sleeping with a prostitute. These are now equated in their minds because they've elevated this tradition. So no wonder Jesus got a little upset with the Pharisees. Their desire was initially good, but the way that they tried to carry it out was decidedly not good. So verse 5, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now notice even in their question, they're not saying, why don't they follow the law? They're saying, why don't they follow the tradition of the elders? Which in their mind was equal to the law, even though it wasn't God's law. Verse 6, Jesus replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition. Jesus quotes Isaiah to support his point. He doesn't actually answer their question directly, but indirectly they get the message. Jesus continues by giving them another example of the way in which they've perverted the law. He says, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother must be put to death. That's the law. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their mother or father is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. Okay, this idea of Corbin, let's explain it. Uh, Pretend my mother and father were aging. They, they They needed my help. And it's my duty as their child to honor my father and mother. It says so right in the law. Now, I own a piece of property. And I could use that property to help my parents. I could sell it and use the proceeds to help Uh, My parents, I could farm it and use what I I gained from there to help my parents. I could build them a house on my property so that they could live there. But I could also get around the whole thing by saying, actually, I've devoted this piece of property to the Lord. And so there's restrictions now on how it can be used. So sorry, mom and dad, I'd really like to help you, but I can't actually do so because the field that I would have given to you, I've actually devoted to the Lord. Now, the thing is, though, I haven't actually given away the field. I can still use the field. In fact, I can redeem the field one day and use it however I want. So it was a way of of, um, a legal loophole of figuring out a way where I could still hold on to what I owned and I could say to my mom and dad, I'm just fulfilling the law and that's why I can't help you. No wonder Jesus was upset. Jesus addresses the crowd then. Listen to me, everyone, verse 14, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but it goes into their stomach 
and then out of the body. In the Greek, literally, the food goes into your body and out into the toilet, into the, the, the latrine, the sewer. Mark adds here in parentheses, in saying this, Jesus declared all things clean. Jesus went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, the kind of folly that denies God exists. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, a couple notes on this last section here. First of all, Jesus has just blasted the Pharisees for misusing the law, and then Jesus actually says something that goes against the law, that contrasts what the law actually says. The Old Testament law was clear. There are foods that you eat that make you unclean. Now, Jesus here says exact opposite. It's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. So what is Jesus doing? Is he being loose with the law? Well, Jesus has the authority to make these kinds of declarations because he's the son of God. And he's also able to make this declaration because he is about to, with the mission that he's embarking on and and going to the cross and dying for our sins, he is about to render all of these cleanliness practices as obsolete. He's about to fulfill them and transcend them. And so Mark says, Jesus declared all things to be clean. Now, this is, is um, further later in the New Testament. In Acts, Peter has a vision of, a, of animals that are unclean and a voice coming from heaven saying, take and eat. And Peter says, no, I don't eat those foods. They're unclean. I, I'm following the law. And, and he has this vision multiple times. And the message to him is that, that these things are no longer unclean. And not only that, he is supposed to go to the Gentiles who were regarded as unclean to share the good news because Jesus has now flung open the doors for everyone to come to faith in him. So hold that thought. We're going to come back to it near the end. Also, what's happening in these last few verses is that Jesus is saying, if you want to pursue purity, focus less on washing the external, washing your hands, and focus on what's deep down inside. Take a look inside you to see the the evil that lurks in your heart. Now, Jesus is is, um, likely thinking of Jeremiah 17, verse 9, where Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. The heart is important for us to to focus on. And in in Old Testament thinking, the heart includes the mind and the emotions and the will. It's the seed of everything. This is where evil is is, uh, lurking in the shadows. This is where if you want to discover where the problem really lies, you need to dig down deep and uncover what's there. It's too easy to say the problems are out there when we haven't taken a look inside to see what lurks in our own hearts. It's pharisaical to focus outwardly when there is inward things to take care of. So Jesus is not very positive towards these Pharisees. And yet I think uh, it's a helpful biblical interpretation principle that whenever we read a story, we should read it from all points of view. 
We often read it from the perspective of the hero. We, we think of ourselves as Jesus condemning those people. Or perhaps we think of ourselves as the disciples who kind of get the inside scoop at the end. In reality, I think there's a lot to be said here for reading this story as a Pharisee. As I said before, when, when I read this and thought about what, Pharisee, what, what it might look like to be a Pharisee today, there were some things there that I could see inside myself. So, I'm going to suggest to you four signs that you might be a modern-day Pharisee. Four things that might be true of Pharisees in the world today. And I'm simply going to invite you to ask God to reveal truth to you. Perhaps God, through his spirit, will say to you, good job. You don't need to worry about these things. But perhaps he will lay some conviction on your heart. And I'm simply inviting you to listen what God is saying to you today and respond accordingly. There was a a study done in in 2013 by Barna, which is a, a respected Christian research institute, surveyed Christians across the United States trying to figure out where they were uh, or how pharisaical people were or how Christ-like people were. So there was 20 statements they asked people to, to evaluate in terms of their own life uh, and arranged in four categories. Christ-like attitudes, Christ-like actions, pharisaical attitudes, and pharisaical actions. How often do you relate with, with these? And do you know what they found? 51% of all Christians, most of the time, lived as Pharisees in both action and attitude. 51% lived as Pharisees. This isn't just a, a biblical New Testament problem. It's a problem for us today. So four signs you might be a modern-day Pharisee. The first one, you might be a modern-day Pharisee if you're too concerned about the rules. You might be a modern-day Pharisee if you're too concerned about the rules. Charles Spurgeon once preached, the legalist in us, the rule follower in us, is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian, for we are all born legalists. (laughs) Legalists or rule followers pay too close of attention to the rules. Now, following God's law, following the rules is of course a good thing. But where Pharisees get into trouble is that they count on their rule following to earn them God's grace. Remember, Pharisees work to earn grace, whereas disciples receive it gratefully. So a Pharisee will say, God owes me because I have such a solid record of attendance at church, because I I give 10% to the church, because I serve in all of these various ways, because I've led so many people to Christ, because I'm generally a nice person, God owes me. That's a pharisaical attitude to following the rule. You might be a Pharisee if you think your spouse owes you something because you did a good deed for them. I think that... um, Theologian and pastor Tim Keller is brilliant on a lot of things, but he explains this point really well. He explains the difference between moralistic self-righteous religion and authentic Christianity. He points out again and again in his preaching that religious people say things like, of course I'm a Christian, and that underneath is a pernicious idea that somehow they've earned the favor of God by their obedience and faithfulness. 
True Christians, he says, by contrast, are filled with wonder and amazement and gratitude that God would accept them despite their brokenness. When asked whether they are a Christian, true Christians say things like, I know, isn't it unbelievable? Can you believe that God would extend his mercy to someone like me? I'm amazed. I'm grateful. I'm overwhelmed. Disciples receive God's grace with gratitude. They don't think they can earn it. They, of course, apply themselves to following God's law, but they follow the rules because God saved them. And they're grateful for God's saving work, not because they want to be saved. They accept God's grace. So you might be a modern-day Pharisee if you are too legalistic, if you're too concerned about the rules. Secondly, you might be a modern-day Pharisee if you divide people into camps of us versus them. You might be a modern-day Pharisee if you divide people into camps of us versus them. The Pharisees did this. We are the hand-washers, and we are in the right. And you are the non-hand-washers, and you are in the wrong. They would have made great COVID police, don't you think? We are right, and they are wrong. They have very clear boundaries that are defined between right and wrong. And we are on this side, and they are on that side. And until they get their act together, they're on their own. It's not my responsibility to go to them. They need to figure it out before we can have any kind of interaction. Jesus was uh, was accused of this by the Pharisees. Jesus, you're eating with tax collectors and sinners, like the two worst categories according to Pharisees. Tax collectors and sinners, you're eating with them. Or when Jesus was anointed with oil by a woman who had lived a life that was not beyond reproach. The Pharisees said, don't you know who's anointing your, your feet? Don't, don't you know who she is? She's a them. And we keep our distance from them because we're concerned about defining and defending our own purity. So who are the tax collectors and sinners of our day? But you would think from the political discourse we've watched in the last year, the, the them, the, the Republicans, they or the Democrats, if only they would get their act together, our country would be in such a better place. The problem is with them, not with me. Maybe it might be people who are of a different sexual orientation than you. Once they figure out how they ought to live, once they figure out what true morality is, once they stop sinning, then I will interact with them. Perhaps it's the poor. Once they start making better decisions, they can help themselves. Maybe it's the rich. Once they start being more generous, we could solve the world's problems. Like an article I saw the other day online, the world's four richest people could vaccinate the entire world uh, in regards to COVID and still have far more money than anybody else. You know, once they do their part, things will be fixed. Maybe it's anti-maskers. Once they start taking this more seriously, we'll be able to deal with COVID. Maybe it's people who are taking COVID too seriously. Once they relax, our society can get back to normal. Who is the they? Pharisees say, once they change, I can accept them. But until then, 
I'm not going to dirty my hands by interacting with them. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate ourselves from the rest of them and destroy them, we could get rid of evil. But the line between good and evil passes not through states, not through classes, nor between political parties either, but right through the human heart. See, the evil is not just out there. The evil lurks in here. You might be a modern-day Pharisee if you're too concerned about the rules, if you divide people into us versus them. Thirdly, you might be a modern-day Pharisee if you don't spend much time with non-Christian people. This is the Pharisees' concern. We're going to keep ourselves pure and holy by being separate. You know, even when we come back from that secular place, the marketplace, we're going to wash our hands because we might have been tainted by evil somewhere out there in our contact with non-religious people. Pharisees are not welcoming. They don't mingle with the impure. They're more concerned with feeding themselves than they are with sharing God's word with other people who don't know him yet. They, they understand God's will, but they don't share it with anyone. And listen, I know it's hard sometimes in our Christian bubbles and Christian communities to break outside of that, to have genuine contact with people who don't know Christ. But it's a pharisaical attitude to, to maintain that distance, especially purposefully, so that we won't be tainted by evil. David Garland writes uh, really powerfully about this in his uh, commentary on Mark. He says, Pharisaical churches turn Christianity into an unassailable fortress by building impregnable walls to keep the pure in and the impure out. This concern for purity directly affects evangelism. Jesus is like those who want to run the church for those who do not yet attend. How do we include them into the family rather than exclude them? In applying this passage, we should ask ourselves, are there subtle and not so subtle ways in which we communicate to others that they are dirty and unfit for contact with us? And how does that hinder our ability to evangelize to them? Folks, this is why at Ross Road we talk about being a welcoming church and welcoming people who are not like us. If we're just going to maintain our distance from them and condemn them and expect them to be where we think they should be instead of meeting them where they're at, we'll never reach anyone. Now, Garland puts this helpful caveat here. A danger lurks in drawing no boundaries at all so that we have no identity over against pagan culture. Okay, that's wise. We, we have a confession of faith. We stand on biblical truth. This is what gives us a common identity. We don't sacrifice that. that in order to welcome the them. But one can see, says Garland, from Jesus' reproach of the Pharisees' tradition that boundaries drawn too tightly choke out love. Boundaries drawn too tightly choke out love. And sometimes we as Christians can be so concerned that if we mingle with unclean people, we are going to get dirty ourselves. It's it's seen as compromise if we will even interact with people of different um, 
uh, walks of life than ours. Garland says, one need not protect holiness with offensive rules. On the contrary, God's holiness bursts all bounds. It does not suffer contamination, but transforms everything it touches. Just like when Jesus would touch things that were unclean, he made them clean. He didn't become unclean himself. Augustine said, light, even though it passes through pollution, is not polluted. We can maintain our holiness and our pursuit of God, even as we reach others. So you might be a modern-day Pharisee if you're too concerned about the rules, if you divide people into camps of us versus them, or if you don't spend much time with non-Christian people. And finally, you might be a modern-day Pharisee if you're always right and you never confess sin. Pharisees get offended very easily because they always think they're right. Now, of course, when we hold an opinion, we hold the opinion because we think that we think we're right about it. We wouldn't hold to an opinion we think is wrong. But Pharisees never admit that they could be wrong. They lack the humility to observe a, a, an argument or a position from, from any other perspective but their own. And they hold to it with such tight fists that they get into fights very often. In fact, they fear being wrong more than they desire to love other people. Modern-day Pharisees never confess sin because they never think that they do sin. They always think that they're in the right, just like the Pharisees always thought they were in the right. We will be well-served if we commit ourselves to humility and following God's Spirit. So, what's the answer to all of this? Okay, we've seen that Pharisees work to earn grace, whereas disciples receive it gratefully. And we've looked at these ways in which we might live out Pharisaism in the world today. Perhaps there was something that convicted you in those four points. What's the answer? Well, the Pharisaical answer would be, well, we need to work really hard to counteract that. Right? If, if, if I'm proud, I'm going to work really hard to be humble. And we can just fall into this cycle of working, 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 working. Of course, the Christian work does involve hard work. But what we need to do before we put ourselves to that work is to receive God's grace. Human effort doesn't get us there. The problem lies deep down in the heart, says Jesus. And you've got to dig down there to access it, to see what the problem is actually is. The Pharisees' hand-washing was all about pursuing a spiritual purity that they could not attain on their own. There was filth in their heart that they could not get rid of by washing their hands, by following all the rules. The solution is Jesus, which sounds simple, but is actually very profound. There's a, a story in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. It's a fascinating little story. It's a vision that the prophet Zechariah had of the Day of Atonement. And in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was the day that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. The Holy of Holies was the, a room in the center of the temple where God's presence was said to dwell. And they lit off lots of smoke and incense because it was said, if you look above the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God is said to dwell, you're just going to fall over and die. 
So we need to obscure your view somehow. But the priest would go in there once a year. So a week before, the priest would begin to prepare himself. He would go into isolation so that he would not touch or be touched by anything that was unclean. He would spend his time studying and reading the Torah, the law. Food, clean food would be brought to him every day. The night before he was to go into the Holy of Holies, he would stay up all night studying scripture and praying so that he was pure before the Lord. And in the morning, he would put on white linen head to toe and he would go into the Holy of Holies and first he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of himself. Then he would come out and he would change. He would bathe himself and put on fresh white linen and he would go in and he would make a sacrifice for the sins of the priests. And then he would come back out and he would bathe again and he would be dressed in white linen. And all of this, by the way, was done in front of all the people. He would bathe behind a thin screen and the people would watch him cheering, them, cheering him on because he was their representative before God. He was going to be the one to go and make atonement for their sins. He was going to go and establish purity within them. So they were cheering him on as he did all of this. And a third time he would go into the temple and offer, sins, offer a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. Now in Zechariah's vision, he sees Joshua the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, but instead of being dressed in, in fine white linen, he's covered in excrement. He's filthy. And the question that we ask is, well, how did this happen? The priest would never go in if he was dirty. And the answer that, that we're supposed to understand from this story is that that's how God sees us. Despite the best efforts we have to wash our hands and follow all the rules and be a good person and do a lot of good deeds, that's how God sees us. Our righteous deeds are like rags in the sight of the Lord. But the most remarkable thing happens in this vision in Zechariah chapter 3. God doesn't kill Joshua on the spot. Instead, an angel of the Lord says, take off those filthy clothes and put on these clean clothes. There's this act of mercy and forgiveness that happens, even though there is such great filth in the presence of the Lord. And then the angel looks at Joshua and he says, one day I will send my servant. In verse 9, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. And so hundreds of years later, another Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, appears on the scene. And a week before he is going to be crucified, he starts to prepare. And the night before he's to be killed, he stays up all night in prayer. And he's trotted out in front of the people, but instead of the people cheering him on for he's going to go and accomplish the forgiveness of sins, they mock him. He's bathed, but in people's spit. And he's forced outside the city, wearing nothing at all, dragging a cross upon which he would be killed. But three days later, he would rise again in brilliant white clothing. And by taking the uncleanness of all of us upon himself, he makes it possible for us to be clean so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filth. He sees the brilliant white, the righteousness of Jesus applied to us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So friends and fellow Pharisees, when we receive the grace of God, we can stop striving for God's approval. We don't have to always be right. We don't have to divide into camps of us versus them because we know that God has saved us and we know that our faith in him grants us access to his cleansing power. Washing our hands by following the rules is not what gets us access to God. It's by receiving God's grace. So what is God speaking to you this morning? What is he asking of you? What pharisaical tendencies do you need to lay aside to just rest in the grace of God? knowing that he's cleansed you from your sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have gone to the cross to do what we could never have done ourselves, that you have cleansed us from our sin, that by going to the cross, you fulfilled all of these cleansing rituals and sacrifices that the Old Testament demanded. And now it's by faith in you that we experience your forgiveness. Forgive us when we are like the Pharisees. Help us to be humble in heart before you to receive your grace and to pursue you out of gratitude out of what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.